Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. If you're interested in finding out more about me, Naomi, or any of the other fantastic women we've featured on this podcast, then follow us on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling. You'll find me there posting about various bits and pieces with some stuff to help and guide you in the workplace and to inspire you in your career, whoever you are. Thank you also to those of you who have rated and reviewed us on iTunes. I really appreciate every single person that takes the time to do this, as it helps me to get the podcast out to more people. So this week's guest, Jacqueline Whittle, is the kind of woman we love on this podcast. She is brave, she is fearless, and she says yes to almost every opportunity that comes her way in life. This approach has led her down a slightly winding career path involving Shania Twain and a role as Sandy in the German version of Greece to her current work in television, where she can be found daily on the weather network in the US and Canada as a meteorologist and on Amazon Prime as part of the team presenting Storm Hunters, a show telling the stories of storm chasers in North America. Yes, you heard that right. Like Helen Hunt in Twister, iconic 90s movie if you haven't seen that one, Jacqueline is a storm chaser. I'd never met one before and I was really intrigued by what they do and why they do it. Before we kicked off the interview, Jacqueline and I were chatting about the podcast, the inspiration behind it and what we're aiming to do. I think people, a lot of people are either channeled into you know, a very professional career. Like, you know, I knew I wanted to be a vet for a long time. And a lot of other women or girls I knew, you know, it was like, well, you must be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Or otherwise people just had no idea what they wanted to do. Um, And so I sort of feel like it's really hard when you don't know what's out there. Um, And that's what I wanted to be able to tap into with people is talking to people who have done things a little bit differently to be able to kind of showcase that you don't have to do things the normal way, you know, and there's loads of jobs out there that you might not even know about, but you might be really interested in. It's very cool. It's very inspiring. You know, I've got three uh, stepdaughters that I've been stepmom to for 18 years now. And, you know, I, I very much subscribe to that kind of thinking too, that there is not one right way to go about doing things. You know, there's, there's many ways you can skin a cat when it comes to, Um, you know, getting to your career goals. And I certainly didn't go about it in a very conventional way. I went about it a very odd way and both with both my careers. And yeah, I mean, you know, I've got one stepdaughter right now who's is just like, nope, I'm not going to go to university. I'm not going to go to college right now. I'm just going to work. And that is perfectly fine with me. And I'm not really sure what direction I want to go in. And and we're like, that's that's cool. You've got your whole life to figure out what you might want to do. And as long as you're providing for yourself and having life experience, that alone can teach somebody a lot more than maybe a, a school program for three or four years. Now, maybe that school program will be necessary down the road for whatever you might want to do. But I just think that, you know, I think that parents often pressure their kids to you know, figure it out. What do you want to do? Go to school and get it done. And sometimes at that age, you just don't know. No, you don't. And I mean, what about you? Like when you were a kid, did you know what you wanted to do? Or how were you as a child? And what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I I knew exactly what I wanted to do, um, probably from about the age of 12, 13. So I, I grew up playing piano. Um, apparently, I was in my kindergarten class. And um, there was a little piano. And I guess I was playing it. And so the teacher called my mom and said, Hey, have you ever thought about putting Jacqueline in piano lessons? She really wants to entertain for the class. She wanted to play for the class. And of course I had no idea what I was doing. So my mom enrolled me in piano and I played piano until, uh, I guess I was in university and uh, classically trained. And my piano was kind of always secondary to what I ultimately became was a professional singer. So when I was about 12 or 13 years old, Um, I had a friend 
who inspired me to audition for local community theater. And I never thought about singing. I never thought about doing anything like that acting. And my first role was I was an evil spider, an evil arachnid. And, and I had to sing this song called Queen of the Night. And it was very operatic and it was very mature sounding. And I was only like, I think, 13. I stumbled my way through it. And I think I realized that, hey, I actually I have I have a bit of natural talent here. I have a bit of a, a voice. And my uh, friend Craig, who was also, you know, uh, about 13, 14 years old, was this lengthy, awkward uh, young guy who was cast as a tap dancing crab in that show. <laughs> and Craig and I would uh, hang out regularly and go to rehearsals with this community theater. And it turned out Craig, um, you know, went on to perform on Broadway and lives in L.A. now and has a really successful career. And I always think I always think that's kind of funny that he started out as tap dancing crab. And so we had many, many musicals that we did as kids. And, and that was really my foray into wanting to become a performer, in particular, a musical theater performer. So when I was, you know, going into high school, I knew exactly what my goal was. I knew that I wanted to fast track and take music and drama. And oddly enough, sciences and maths, which came later in life, were not a priority to me at all. Uh, it was all about music and my creative side. So yeah, I did know what I wanted to do. And then I enrolled in a musical theater program in university. Um, and that program only accepted, I think, like 14 people across Canada. And I was lucky enough to be accepted. And it was a, a very unique program. It happened to be in, in Windsor, where I grew up. So that was convenient because all these people were coming from around the country to this school. And it was really in my backyard. So I was able to live at home and work. And I worked really hard in my summers to, you know, support my, um, my university um, program. and. Yeah, so that that I did know what I wanted to do. And I can remember, you know, we talk about all these weird jobs that we have when we're growing up and all these weird experiences. That summer before university, here I was, 18 years old, and, um, you know, performing and, and singing and looking for this glamorous life. And then in order to pay my way into university, I actually worked at, like, the most dingy... Um, uh, automotive factory oh my gosh. in Windsor, Detroit area. Um, my dad worked as a uh, human resources manager there and he got me in, in the plant basically. So I was operating really large steel presses that, and like with stinky old men and, you know, smoking cigarettes on their breaks and eating their sandwiches and their lunch pail. And it was anything but glamorous, but I earned really good money. And that's kind of me in a nutshell. I, I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. And I always just said yes to any kind of opportunity, you know, and so that allowed me to pay my schooling. And, and uh, that's how I, that's basically how I got in, you know, through university. And, and then I really started working as a professional performer when I was 19 years old. It's amazing. So yeah, I really I got my first gig right out of school. I actually quit university after one year because I had a choice to make whether I would finish my bachelor of fine arts in musical theater, or if I would earn money and get on stage and do exactly what I was hoping to do. So I ended up going to uh, a place in Ontario called Muskoka, which is known as kind of our, well, a lot of celebrities have um, cottages there and it's kind of our playground for Toronto. It's their cottage mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, country. And it's, it's really beautiful. And I performed at a resort called Deerhurst Resort. And that resort was where Shania Twain also got her start. It was Canadian. So I was here, I was 19, 20 years old. And Shania Twain actually came back to the resort to see the show. Wow. And she's like, superstar. And I'm performing Shania Twain songs in front of Shania Twain. <laughs> Wow. So I was going to ask you the question, like, were you, you know, obviously now your job entails being pretty like brave and fearless. And I was going to say, were you, were you always like that? Clearly you were definitely always like that because in performing Shania Twain songs in front of Shania Twain is pretty fearless, I have to say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I didn't really have much of a choice. It was like this chatter, like whenever she would come to town, because she would come back to this small town because 
she had a cottage there. Yeah, you just had to do it. And so she was really awesome. She came backstage after and she was really nice. And um, but, you know, I look back in those days and I mean, that was that was really when I was about 1920. And I I performed for 11 years. And a lot of my years were spent at that resort because it was kind of my day job. So I was able to work on other uh, creative projects. And I released uh, two albums through my music career independently uh, at a time where, like, to get distribution on iTunes was a huge deal. And my, and, uh, my husband and I were able to do that. So my husband produced both my albums. And, um, you know, so I would always go back to Deerhurst Resort as kind of my, my day job. And it really wasn't a day job because I was performing every night. Um, but it allowed me to have a stable income and still work on all kinds of different projects. And sometimes I would leave and then I would come back a year later or, you know, six months later. And I was lucky that they would always um, have me back. So it was a one of the best times of my life was spent performing uh, up at Deerhurst and all the while having no idea that I would be, you know, one day becoming a, a meteorologist and storm chaser. This was just totally not leading to that, you know. I read that you um, toured the world as the lead Sandy in Greece as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. Um, it was a crazy story because um, I had worked with this choreographer on a different show. I was uh, 25 years old at the time. And she had also choreographed this European tour of uh, the musical Greece. And she called me up one day. And I mean, I was a starving artist. Like when I wasn't working and when my husband and I both weren't working, times were tough you know we you know and that's the life of an artist and so I can remember her calling me up and saying um they've lost their sandy on the the tour in Europe can you get to New York for an audition you have to go like in two days well I didn't have the money to jump on a plane I didn't have the money to jump in the car I just said I'm really sorry like and it was just an audition so I'm thinking well you know I could go all the way there and they could say thank you very much but no thanks so I said, Melissa, I'm really sorry, but I just can't justify it. Okay, no problem. Well, but a week later, she calls back and she says, you know, I keep telling them that you are a really good option for this role. And I really love to see you go and audition. And you sure you can't? And I said, I'm really sorry, Melissa, but I, I just can't justify this. And I guess it's just a missed opportunity. Thank you so much. <laughs> and, and which is not like me because I, I, I must have been very destitute at the time because I would have normally just been all over that. I was going to say, this is not your kind of saying yes to everything moment. Very out of character. And I thought, well, there goes that. I mean, I wish I could, but I just can't. And, you know, like I said, I had three stepdaughters and, and I just, I, I just thought I just can't afford this right now. And so I couldn't go. And I got a third call and she said, um, okay, I've convinced them that you are the best option for this role. So I need you on a plane to Germany oh my in like six days. And I'm like, what? So she really actually sold them on me. And I had sent them a video too. I'd sent them some sort of dem demo on video. And they literally went on the choreographer's word, which is crazy. And I flew to Germany and learned the show. I didn't even own luggage. And I learned the show in the German language in, I think it was like six days. Wow. It was just absolutely insane. And all the music. And I toured um, for the next four months on a bus every day. And it was an incredible experience. Um, and I just, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> like how that all just happened. It was meant to be, but um, yeah. So that was an incredible experience. I turned 26 there, I remember. Um, and all the while I was writing and recording with my husband back home because we were working on our second album and it was a, those were exciting days yeah and what kind of music is on your album Jacqueline yeah it was uh both albums were rock okay cool. so yeah I went to school for musical theater I mean I sing I, I should say sang because I haven't been singing at all many for many years but at the time I would sing various styles depending on what show I'd be doing you know um but my rock my 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 own two um, albums were very, very um, hard rock, almost classic rock sounding. Um, so yeah, so it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed singing rock, but it's certainly not the only genre that defines me. You know what I mean? I, I enjoy singing jazz. I enjoy singing all kinds of different styles of music. Yeah. And so, you know, you're obviously leading a life as a musician. You've been touring around Europe. You've made a couple of albums. 
what was your kind of light bulb to say, maybe this isn't for me? Maybe there's something more that I want to do. Was that a gradual decision or did something really kind of kickstart your change? Well, you know, I think you just hit the nail on the head when you said, is there something more? Because I can remember getting close to 30 and I remember thinking, you know, I'm, I'm tired. Like I'm, I'm performing all the time. I'm auditioning all the time. There's a ton of rejection in that, in that business. And you do get knocked down a lot and you need a really thick skin, which I think I had, but I just was getting kind of tired of it. And there was a show, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the uh, We Will Rock You, which is the Queen musical. Great scene. It's brilliant. Love it. It's a brilliant show. So if you've seen it, then you know probably the role of Scaramouche. So in Toronto, they, uh, Will Rocky was coming to Toronto, and I went through a series of auditions, like several callbacks, and I was really feeling good about the lead, Scaramouche, and Brian May from Queen actually was in the final series of auditions, and I just thought, okay, I've got this. And at the end of that, it was a big no. And I was like, oh, I invested so much time, so much energy, and it was like, really? And so that one, I remember, I was about 28 years old. That one really hit hard where I'm like, oh, you know, and so not to be bitter because, you know, you pick up and you move on. And But I remember that one hitting me pretty hard, like, oh, is this really what I want to do? And, and am I really up for this for the next however many years of my life? That was part part of it. The other part of it was that I knew that there was more to me. You know, I had spent my whole life prancing around in sexy costumes and, and, you know, just music was everything. It defined me. It was all I was. I had never really explored the other, the academic side of me. In fact, I never even considered myself an academic. And so I really wanted to do something. I I guess I had something to prove to myself, maybe prove to my parents, prove to my husband, prove to lots of people that I am more than just this. And I am a smart woman and I want to do something that has a lot of value, I guess, is what I, the way I looked at it. And so I've always been kind of a weather nerd. My dad was a weather nerd. Um, You know, I can always remember my dad, we would go on vacations to Florida every year at March break, spring break. And my dad would be glued to the weather forecast. And if we got to Florida and it was, you know, a cool spell. Well, the whole vacation was ruined because he was just like, he was such a weather nerd and every, I mean, he just, he was glued to it. He was glued to the weather channel in the States. So I remember watching that. And I guess as I kind of thought about doing something different, I immediately thought media. Um, I didn't really think weather. I just thought, well, media might be a neat kind of marriage to what I do on stage. I don't think I would shy away from the camera. And you know, whether it's radio or TV. So I kind of explored that. I started volunteering my time at a local cable station. And one thing kind of just led to another. And then ultimately, I honed in on my direction. And that was going to be weather. And here in Canada, um, which is a little bit different than the US at the time, which is nearly 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of emphasis put on uh, women in particular, but I guess just weather anchors in general, uh, having their meteorology background. I don't know. I kind of wanted to, to be different. I wanted to make sure that I had the education and set myself apart, particularly because I was a little older entering into career number two. So I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I had a skill set that would set me apart. Um, so I went back to school to um, Mississippi State University is um, an online program designed for people that are working in the television, um, you know, platform that are working full time, maybe doing weather, and they can actually uh, get this education while still being able to work. And so it was not easy. It was three years, three semesters a year, and you're you're trying to work full time while going to school. So and it was a lot of heavy math and. Um, you know, it was very foreign to me to go back to school at 30 years old. I will reemphasize that in high school, you know, I wasn't focusing on maths and sciences because I was a musician and I wanted to be a performer. So it was really foreign. I, I needed to get some help. I needed to be tutored from time to time. And, uh, 
once I was done the program, I felt like I was armed with, you know, the proper education and I felt like I was in a good spot. And what were you doing for work while you were doing that program, Jacqueline? Were you working in the cable network or were you doing something else? I was doing a bit of everything. Um, At the time I was performing at night. Um, I was going to school and then I ended up going into uh, some community cable stations, you know, kind of for free and not really working full time on stage. So that was hard to kind of make ends meet. Um, I remember that, but I needed the experience. Then I worked at a radio station for a summer and, you know, earned very little money, but again, needed to get that experience. And I'm glad I did because working in radio really keeps your ad lib skills. It was all about uh, getting as much experience, I guess, under my belt um, at that stage. And when you're, you know, at this point, 30, 31 years old, it's hard to go back to earning, you know, really little money for what you're doing and and but you know you have to uh one of the things that I I had to do and this is one of those moments where you know it's about saying yes to everything I took a an opportunity to work with one of our news network called Global News mm-hmm. um and I lived apart from my husband for a full year to do that wow gosh and it was very hard I mean it, it was, is hard I've done that for three months and it was hard <laughs> it is it really is but you know it was it was very good in many ways too, because as a as a woman, and and I had been with him for I guess about probably nearly ten years at that point, and and stepmom and all of that. You know, you really get comfortable in life and in in a marriage and a relationship. And I think sometimes that we lose kind of a part of who we are as an individual because you you just you're always together and you're you're in a you're a couple and you love each other and you do everything together. And so that year really taught me. Um, about who I was again individually and I thought it was very healthy for me to do that it was very difficult but you know we missed each other terribly and when we saw each other it was uh it was wonderful it was it was sometimes awkward because you haven't seen each other in a while but but it was wonderful but it was it was it allowed me to focus on my schooling it allowed me to focus on this new career that I had just taken on and I had no distractions so to say and so it was a it was a great year, but it was a tough year. And at that point, I was living in Regina, Saskatchewan. And so that is basically out in our uh, what we call our prairies in Canada, which is I was going to say, isn't isn't that like the sticks of Canada? <laughs> it's totally the sticks. I mean, it's like if you know where Calgary, Alberta is, or Edmonton, Alberta. I was about six or seven hours from those cities, but in between is nothing but flat you know, barren farmland. And I mean nothing. And so it is out in the sticks. And it was beautiful. I mean, some of the prairie sunsets that I would see and some of the storms that I saw out there were incredible. So now I'm about, I think, 32 years old. And I'm really starting to get the uh, itch for different types of weather because I'm, I'm in my second year of school at that point, I think. And I'm working within the field. So I took this weather job and um, I really didn't know what I was doing, but it was a small enough market that it allowed me to get my feet wet. And so I learned how to work on a proper news set and work with an anchor. And so it was a really great place to sort of, you know, like I say, dip my feet in the water. At the same time, that particular year, um, there was a local photographer um, that asked me to go for coffee one time. And I met him and his name was Greg Johnson. And he said that he was a storm chaser. And he said, uh, I'm a photographer and I actually, I also chase storms and I go down to the U.S. in Tornado Alley every May. Um, Would you ever consider going on a storm chase? Have you ever thought about that? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I literally just started this job six months ago. And (laughs) no, I'd never thought about doing anything like that, like chasing tornadoes. What? What are you talking about this? Okay. And so, but in, in my normal fashion, I say pretty well, yes to everything because it's an opportunity to learn and grow. And I, so I went to my news director at the time and I said, you know, we have a, a severe weather season here in Canada, right where we are in the, in the Canadian prairies. What do you think if I went down in May and that could kind of brand our station as, you know, the severe weather experts and, you know, Hey, our, our local uh, weather anchor went down to Tornado Alley and you should tune in to us throughout the summer because she's really going to know her stuff. And he, I sold him on the idea and he said, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So 
that particular May, I went down to chase uh, severe weather with Greg and a camera person from our station. And I saw my first tornado. And that was the most, uh, at that time, the most exhilarating experience I had had yet. That put all of my, you know, opening night nerves and all of these, you know, wonderful experience I had in my career put it at bay. I was like, this is insane. I'm looking down the road at a tornado coming, what seemed like coming right at us, which it wasn't, but it seemed that way. And, you know, I just couldn't believe the power of mother nature and, and to see this before my eyes and what our atmosphere is, is capable of. So that was it. From that day on, I, I had the bug and that particular chase trip in our second or third week, we were gone for three weeks, um, a devastating tornado happened in Missouri, in a, in a city called Joplin, Missouri. And it was an EF5 tornado, which is the, the highest rated tornado. Is that like, that's like the Richter scale of tornadoes, is it? Exactly. Yep. It's called the Fujita scale and it's uh, the enhanced Fujita scale. And yes, the, an EF5 is the highest you can go in terms oh of wind gosh. speeds and damage. And so we didn't see that tornado. We were actually down in Texas, which is south of Missouri. Um, but we saw on social media at the time that this tornado had moved through Joplin and that it was really, really awful damage. And it just sounded like an awful story. Well, immediately I, I just became this reporter that I had never even knew I was. And I said, we got to go there right now. And they're like, what do you mean? We're in Texas. I'm like, I don't care. We got to drive through the night. We got to go. We got to go check this out. I mean, I'm here on behalf of my news station. This is a huge story. So we drove like crazy and arrived um, in Joplin probably around two or three in the morning. The next thing you know, I'm on these conference calls with our national station. And all of a sudden, my storm trip came to an end. My storm chase trip came to an end. And Global National is now renting me an SUV. My cameraman and I are put up in a hotel and all of a sudden I'm reporting on national news and I've only been working in the field for six months. Wow. And I'm now in front of the biggest national news story of the U.S. and probably Canada. It's plastered all over every network. There's a, it was awful. I mean, there were 100 and I think it was 170 some odd people died in that tornado. Oh gosh. And I'm wow. Front. Yeah, it was just awful devastation. And I'm out front with a media frenzy of like CNN and, um, you know, CBS and NBC and ABC and all these satellite trucks are lined up. And here I am, Miss, I've never reported on national news before trying to, to do this. And it went extremely well. And I realized that, you know, I work very well under those high pressure situations, like learning the script in German in five or six days. And so that's where I really tend to uh, shine. And that put me on the map. And the next thing you knew, um, I had an, a job opportunity back home in Toronto. And I think a lot had to do with that particular experience in Joplin, Missouri. That's such a good thing to learn about yourself, isn't it, though, that you work well under pressure? Because, you know, that's a, that is an art and a skill that not everybody has. You know, some people fold under pressure, don't they? And some people hate that. They hate the feeling of of having that kind of um focus on you or the the time limits or whatever it happens to be but if you're one of those people that thrives that's such a great asset for your career whatever you're doing yeah I I would agree I mean you know I don't think I would thrive if it was daily pressure like that if it was like if the bar was always set higher every every day but when when it matters and you have to just you know put your best foot forward and just put everything out there and that's what I had to do in that moment there is no, there's no room for error. You just have to just do it. And that's what I did. And, um, you know, so it's interesting how I believe, you know, you, you get what you put in. I believe that if you work hard at anything, you are going to get that back in the, in the form of opportunities in the form of maybe recognition or accolades. I really believe that, you know, even though sometimes your work environment may, may not be as positive as you'd like, or, you know, maybe there's morales down or whatever the case is in the workplace. I just feel like just keep working hard. I, I really believe that because if you're inspired and you're positive, then I think only good things come back. That's just a bit of karma. And I, I kind of believe that. 
And so, you know, one thing led to another, and then I was able to come back home with my husband and uh, worked at a station in Toronto. And then I ultimately, a year after that, ended up um, on the Weather Network, and I applied for this job, and this is where I've been ever since, and I honestly couldn't be happier. I storm chase every year. I've covered hurricanes. I've covered, um, you know, several countless tornadoes. I traveled to Mount Everest this past year with the show that we host. Um, I traveled to the Canadian Arctic this past June and uh, literally chased a polar bear, which was the most crazy chase I've ever done. Um, Just learning about climate change and uh, reporting on that and and shooting a really uh, great episode of our show Storm Hunters. I don't know, I, I turned 40 this past year and I think my 40th year was my best year yet. Sounds like it, for sure. <laughs> it was really wonderful and I'm very grateful for the opportunities, but I, I go back to, I, I feel like I work for it. You know, I work really hard and it's really important to me to work hard. And um, yeah, I I love it. So I, I never know what's next. You know, I, I heard a saying one time that there are three good careers in each person. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. I, I like that. Yeah. yeah, three yeah, good yeah. So this is definitely career number two. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, you had mentioned to me before we started the podcast that you're a veterinarian and that you work with horses. And I, that really was interesting to me because the last couple of years I've started riding. Okay. Uh-oh, third, car- third career on the way. <laughs> I feel like it might have something to do with horses. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but uh, something told me to something told me to just do something with horses, get involved with horses. Wow. Okay, well there you go. So, just nipping back to the storm chasing. Um, you know, I think I'm sure you probably get this one all the time, but like when I was growing up in the 90s, you know, Helen Hunt was in that movie Twister and, you know, you kind of see her dashing around chasing tornadoes and all the rest of it. And it's this kind of image of one woman and a bunch of men in a truck driving around and it's quite dangerous, quite crazy. Does that bear any resemblance to real life at all, Jacqueline? Or is that just a complete fabrication? Because I think a lot of people would have no idea what it's like to chase a storm, what it's like to be even near a tornado. You know, most people's um, instinct would be to get out and get away. Um, So what is it that draws you close? And can you give us a flavor of what it's actually like to be there? Sure. Well, to be honest, Twister is actually a really good depiction of what it's like. Um, (laughs) Anyone who is too young to remember that really needs to go and find it online. We're showing our age, I think. Yeah, I know. Any storm chaser, you know, has watched Twister a hundred times. And, you know, um, it, it, it is a good depiction of it, to be very honest. I mean, I would say that nowadays there's far more female storm chasers, which is great. But I started chasing almost... I guess probably nine years ago now, and there were not a lot nine years ago. And, um, you know, it, I, I guess it, it is kind of what you think it is. There's, there are a lot of guys that are, you know, you know, kind of doing guy stuff, like telling dirty jokes and farting and burping and eating bad food. And there's nothing glamorous about it. It's like you stay in the most dingy hotels in the central plains with bugs in them and you know like I really mean it it's it's kind of gritty um you don't get a lot of sleep you are living off road food I try and be as healthy as I possibly can um but it's hard out there and you know the food in in Texas is not exactly like the food in in Toronto I mean there's a lot of barbecue and there's a lot of huge portions and it seems like everything's cooked with butter or lard and um, you know, you're it, just hanging out for a salad when you come home. Exactly. So we try and be healthy, but you know, it's a lot of driving. It's a lot of time stuck in a car with, uh, people that you get to know very quickly. And, uh, the, the people that I've been chasing with since being at the weather network, um, while the camera people maybe have changed my, my storm chase partner has been the same and his name is Mark Robinson. And we are so very close like sometimes we drive each other absolutely nuts because we're like, you know, brother and sister in a way that we spend so much time together. We, we've traveled the world together. Um, and we've, we've also, you know, come close to saving each other's life in, in a very dire situation when you're chasing, uh, in particular tornadoes, but hurricanes too. These are very high risk situations. 
and you need to be with people that you trust. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of laughs. There's a lot of like culture with the storm chasing community where, you know, we're all kind of like, like, like Twister, you know, you've got this convoy of cars. We're all on radios, what we call ham radios. And so they're like these kind of like walkie talkie like things where you're, you know, be back and forth on the radio and you're giving each other directions and you're, you're having fun and the odd joke comes across the, the radio. And then next thing you know, you are getting closer to the storm. And then, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, shit gets real. Like people are, are, are listening and, and they, all of a sudden it's a very serious tone. Um, you know, every move you make is an important one. Um, we're always trying to help each other and make sure that we have a proper escape route. So if the storm is going, you know, Northeast at a certain, uh, you know, speed, if it's going Northeast at 30 kilometers an hour, then we're making sure that we have a South option out of the way, or maybe we're, we're staying with the storm, but we're going due East. And, you know, we're looking out for not just a tornado, but the risk for hail and um, what we call microbursts and downbursts and winds that can damage your car or, or trees around you and lightning danger when you're out, you know, documenting the, the storm. And the whole time we're rolling on cameras um, for, for our, uh, our show that we host called storm hunters. So it's drama leading up to it. It's the relationships, it's the friendships. And then of course it's the storms. So there's a lot of tense, um, you know, tense situations in the car, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, we, we always end up at the end of the day, you know, having a bite to eat together and laughing about some of the, the, you know, close calls we've had or, or some funny stories or who got stuck in the mud on that country road or, you know, what are our plans tomorrow? A lot has to do with, um, you know, getting up really, really early as a group and collectively forecasting for the afternoon to see where you have to be because sometimes you can chase all day. And I mean, that means driving for like 10, 12 hours all day, but then maybe the next day, the best storms are going to be two states north of you. Well, now you've got to get to Nebraska and you're, and you're in Oklahoma. So you literally have driven all day and then you have to drive another 10 hours north, you know, and you'll get into your hotel at one o'clock in the morning and you're back up at seven doing it all over again. So it's busy. You don't get a lot of sleep. Um, I'd mentioned it's not glamorous at all, but it's exhilarating and you either love it or you don't. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who um, are meteorologists that have no interest in, in storm chasing. I also have some meteorologist friends that are fascinated with tornadoes and severe weather, but could care less about chasing a hurricane, you know, because a hurricane is very much a marathon of a chase. You know, it's nonstop. It's like rain and wind and storm surge and flooding. And it's like three and four days of it where a tornado or a severe thunderstorm could just be a blue sky to a dark storm cloud that passes by, you get a glimpse of a tornado and you're out having steak dinner that night. Yeah. And is your aim to get as close as you can in the safest possible way? Like, is that the aim of your storm chasing or what, what, how do you, how do you measure a good chase? Good question. We are always trying to get in the worst of the weather because um, as a storm chaser, you're trying to get the best visuals. So you want the strongest winds, you want the biggest storm surge, you want the biggest hail, you know, you want the biggest tornado. But we try and do it with integrity and with safety in mind. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of people, especially in the U.S. Plains, that are out there making very poor decisions. And I've seen this in the last, you know, nine years that I've chased. It, it's getting worse in that because you know, all of us have a smartphone in our hands and I mean, all of us chasers, but I mean, all of us people like everybody locals, yeah, yeah. has a smartphone in their hands. So you're seeing now storm chasers basically competing with, you know, the couple that lives on the farm in Oklahoma that can pull out their smartphone and get a shot at the tornado. And that's very scary because a lot of people don't realize the destruction that they can cause even though they grew up in Oklahoma or Kansas and they're used to tornadoes they're thinking oh I'm fine you know I'm just going to get this shot I'm going to it's going to be all over CNN tomorrow or all over the weather channel or the weather network tomorrow and I'm going to become a, a star 
And what they should be doing is getting in their basement, taking shelter because, you know, they're not trained meteorologists that are able to look at the radar and track the actual motion of the storm and, and know what's involved. So that's scary. I mean, I've actually seen families in the back of pickup trucks with their smartphones out, literally like chasing behind us with kids. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know? So yeah, it is a big yikes. And, you know, I've also seen people in hurricanes with their family or with their dogs and they haven't evacuated. And I know that there's, you know, a category four hurricane coming in to make landfall and these people are still here. And, and, you know, people that are listening to the podcast right now might say, well, why are you there? I mean, it's kind of hypocritical, but I'm there because it's my job. That's, that's what I've trained to do. Um, I've, I've, I wouldn't a go into a category four hurricane for my first hurricane either. I've chased, I think seven now. And the first hurricane that I was in was a very weak category one hurricane. And I learned, and then the second one was also a weak category one. And, and then it became a category two, et cetera. And I, I've built up to that. So I know what to expect. I know how to keep myself safe. We're really quite proud of the decision that we made with hurricane Michael uh, back in the fall, Hurricane Michael made a landfall as a Category 4 storm in uh, the Florida Panhandle. And we had the opportunity to ride out the storm where the strongest winds would be and where the strongest storm surge would be and probably the worst devastation would be. But we actually didn't have a safe spot to ride out the storm. And we knew that. So just to give you a little bit of background, when we're looking to ride out a hurricane, we actually go to a parking garage. So oh. like a four level, yeah, concrete parking garage. And the reason for that is because they're very, very strong structure. They've got these massive concrete, you know, pillars that are holding the whole structure up. It's about as stable as you could possibly get. Um, and also with winds, it's all concrete. So it, it can stand up to those winds. Um, the other thing is, is that with these big concrete pillars, we can often hide behind them and, and document the whole storm sort of behind the, the strongest winds and rain. So they're really helpful. The other thing is, is that you can be up on the third or fourth level. So if storm surge is coming in, and in some cases you can get, you know, storm surge like 12, 15, 20, 25 feet high. So now you're above the water just in case. So the, with Hurricane Michael, we really wanted to be on the right side of the eye wall of the hurricane, which is the strongest part. But we knew we just couldn't do it safely. So we stayed on the left side of the eye wall, which did have weaker winds, but we were in a parking garage, we were safe, and we, you know, documented the whole storm. And after it was done, we were able to get in our car and literally drive to where the worst damage was from the right side of the eye wall. So, and I guess I'm proud to say that we made the right decision because there were a lot of storm chasers that didn't. And while nobody lost their life, which is good, very good, they came close. There were a lot of storm chasers that were in this right side of the eye wall with like practically a death wish, you know, storm surge literally was washing away their cars as they're trying to document this. And it's just stupidity. And it gives all of us storm chasers a bad name when you make those bad decisions. So, you know, I'm all about safety first and I, I have a family. I have a husband. I want to be able to come home and tell these stories and not be washed away. The science is a little complicated, but a tornado basically develops from a class of thunderstorms known as a supercell. High in the atmosphere, the winds within the thunderstorm are heading in a variety of directions until they basically collide and start to rotate. This rotation narrows lower down towards the Earth's surface, and it tightens up into what is known as a mesocyclone. If it makes contact with the ground, it's tight and it's moving, then it's classified as a tornado. Jacqueline picks up from here. The whole storm itself is moving in one direction overall, like maybe the whole storm system is moving northeast. But the tornado itself can do erratic things. It can start to kind of move in multiple directions. And so it's scary because you don't always know what exactly that tornado is going to do. You know the storm is overall moving in one direction, but tornadoes can do kind of peculiar things. So that's a tornado in a nutshell. And we will often stay about half a mile to a mile away from a tornado. And we're always making sure that we can escape in the opposite direction and that 
in what that storm is, is going in so that we have a safe way out. We can get a good visual. And then the other thing that we're always hoping when we're documenting tornadoes is that they don't move over a populated area. You know, we're hoping that we see one over an open field, which is why it's so fantastic to chase in the uh, U.S. plains, uh, because there's not a lot of population. There's not a lot of houses. So often you do get a tornado over an open field. You can see it. You can document it. You can learn about the storms as a meteorologist. And then you can walk away and feel pretty good that, hey, you know, nobody was hurt with that. When it comes to hurricanes, they form completely differently. Hurricanes form over warm ocean water, and they are a group of thunderstorms. So those same thunderstorms that I was talking about where they're 50, 60,000 feet in the air, this is now a huge system with spinning thunderstorms. But in our case, when we watch hurricanes where we live, we're looking for, um, we're watching every move they make because they could potentially make a landfall in the U.S., so when I talk about chasing a Category 4 storm, those are winds of over 250 kilometers an hour sustained. And it's absolutely incredible. Um, with the When it comes to the eye of the hurricane, so remember I said that there's a big collection of thunderstorms spinning around? Well, in the center of that collection is actually a clearing. That's called the eye of the hurricane. And in the eye... It's actually the opposite of what's going on in the hurricane. So you've got clear conditions with completely calm winds. And then everywhere outside of that eye is absolute devastation, like devastating winds and storm surge and rain and tornadoes and everything. All of the most severe weather is wrapped up in this huge cluster of thunderstorms. And it's incredible. It sounds terrifying, but it's actually quite fascinating. Um, but... The, the other thing about um, hurricanes and the eye, and I got to experience this for the first time in a hurricane this fall, when the eye itself moves over you, you, get, you go from complete chaotic, like screaming winds, thunderstorm, rain, everything, tornadoes, to dead still winds. And like complete calm conditions when the eye moves over you. It was the most incredible experience this past fall when Hurricane Florence in North Carolina, the eye actually moved over where we were. And all of a sudden you go from like, like I said, just insane conditions to hearing the frogs chirping. That's so weird. It's so weird. And like, I never really got a complete cleared out eye because what ends up happening when hurricanes come on land, the eye sometimes can get kind of um, overtaken by clouds, but a true eye over the ocean that's unimpeded with any sort of interruption or friction will have completely clear skies. So you literally go from like the craziest conditions to sunny skies and calm winds and birds chirping and frogs and it's just incredible and then literally as the next side of the eye wall is coming at you you go right back to these horrific conditions again that's a great that's so crazy I, mean, I was just going to ask you this isn't a problem probably a question you get asked loads but what's it like to be really close to a tornado you know I presume it's really noisy it's obviously really windy like what can you describe a little bit what it's like to stand there as close as you get or as close as you could safely get to a tornado Jacqueline well you know I I've never been close enough to hear the freight train roar and you hear that all the time from people that have been in their storm shelters or in their house when a tornado has rolled right over their town and they say oh it sounds like a freight train I've never actually heard that myself because I make sure to position myself in a spot where I'm safely able to get out of the way. And that doesn't make us wimpy storm chasers. It, it, we're close enough, but I, I don't ever recall being able to really hear the roar of the tornado. I've heard the roar of a hurricane several times, and, and that's very loud, and you can hear glass breaking and trees and limbs snapping and roof shingles flying, and I've heard those sounds, and those are very scary sounds. Um, but in a tornado... You often, where we are, we're actually, it's kind of neat when you're, when you're chasing a tornado because we don't even get wet. Like we're actually in a dry, 
calm area with a view of the tornado and under that tornado it's complete chaos it's 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 like winds of anywhere from you know 200 to 400 kilometers an hour uh, depending on the strength of the tornado but we're not actually in it we're standing outside of it so that we could document it and make sure we stay safe with a hurricane you're actually in it with michael i was in a very destructive part and that was the most I mean, powerful kind of experience I've ever had in my life where I felt so small in such a powerful storm. And there were times within that storm that, you know, I, I was just like crouched down in, in the middle of the stairway in the parking garage, just hoping that this would all end okay. And, you know, you just have these few moments where it's like, oh my gosh, like, is this going to be all right? Is this gonna, like, what have I done? Um, but it did turn out to be okay. Um, but I think that's what, that's what gets me going. You know, if I didn't have those moments, I wouldn't do this again. It's, it's absolutely the adrenaline rush. It's like someone climbing Mount Everest or something where it's like, you know, it's, it's exactly that fear that, that makes you want to do it again. And, you know, it's, it's exhilarating. And is it that, that, you know, I always, um, sort of mention to guests on this podcast about the three M's, which is their, their mentors, their mistakes and their motivations. And I'm guessing, is it that adrenaline that motivates you in that job? Like, is that what you love about it? Absolutely. Because I, I've left not just that Joplin, Missouri tornado where, you know, there was EF5 damage that was really difficult to see, but I've seen that several times since. And every time I see damage like that, and there's loss of life and loss of homes and I mean, just awful sights that I never want to see again. I always have this moment where I say, huh, maybe this, maybe this is it, you know, like that's really, really tough to see. But I always want to go back out again. I always, um, I, I just, I can't seem to stay away from it. And, you know, there's, there's, um, we've been kind of focusing our show on, on different things. Like we did an earthquake episode in Nepal, uh, this particular year, we did an Arctic episode and we're supposed to be going back to the Arctic and we're, we're, we're doing different things. Um, but tornadoes are very, very thrilling, but I've actually gone from loving severe thunderstorms and tornadoes to really loving hurricanes even more. So that's actually my, my preference is to chase hurricanes now. Everyone makes mistakes in their career, but in Jacqueline's case, an error of judgment could be life-threatening. I asked her about this and about how the experiences she has had in the field have shaped her both personally and professionally. Yeah, um, there was one particular tornado um, called the El Reno tornado. Um, and we uh, we were chasing that one. We were looking at it and from our car. We were about a half a mile away from what ended up being the largest tornado in North American history. We did not know this then. We just thought it's a large tornado. In fact, it looked like just a wall of rain. And we learned later that that tornado was 4.2 kilometers wide. And it was... Remember I talked about how some tornadoes can make erratic moves and they don't always do exactly what you think they will do. Well, that was one that, that did that. It sped up. It became extremely wide. It changed directions in terms of which way you thought the tornado was going to go. And we made a mistake that day by getting maybe a little too close. And we also made a mistake that um, we were in a traffic jam. So basically, we were looking at this massive tornado, and we're trying to flee, and we've got brake lights ahead of us. And there's literally hundreds of storm chasers trying to get out of the way, and I thought for sure that was it. I thought we were done. And just about a quarter of a mile north of us on the highway that we were on, um, a prominent storm chaser, researcher, scientist, uh, lost his life that day. And so that was, I guess, a mistake in that you can never assume that you can just get out of the way and everything's going to be okay because uh, Tim Samaras was one of the best and he always played it safe and he died that day. 
And so that, that was a day that I, none of us, no chaser will ever forget El Reno. It's, it really changed a lot of chasers and, and, you know, how you approach a storm. And I mean, it's just a day that I'll, we'll never forget. So that, that was kind of a mistake in that I would rethink how I would play that storm if I had to do it again. That must be an incredibly sobering experience to see somebody who is themselves very experienced and, and very responsible and very safe, like you say, to see them lose their life when you think that those sorts of people are, nobody's invincible, but that they are going to be as invincible as anybody can be in that situation. That's exactly it. I mean, there's a lot of people that I've seen make some really dumb decisions and I'm like, Oh, you're lucky. You know, you're really lucky. This is, that's not smart. But with him, it was different. And it really broke everyone's heart to see Tim lose his life that day. Um, There were a couple other people uh, in the car as well with him and they just couldn't get out of the way of that. You know, if, I mean, if we're talking about a small tornado, he, he would have made it, but this, this tornado became so large so quickly and it was just such an incredible day. I mean, we, we waited all afternoon at a gas station, playing cards, goofing around, waiting and waiting and waiting for the storms to actually fire, actually start happening. And it was like blue sky, blue sky, blue sky. And we're like, oh my gosh, when is it going to get going? Finally, we saw this little cloud and we're like, okay, maybe that's our first storm of the day. And then we see a little blip on radar and we see that it's raining and maybe a little bit of hail. And we're like, okay, so we all hop in the cars and off we go and the radios are on. Everybody's pumped. Everybody's excited. And then um, within literally, I would say 30 minutes, that went from a little blip on radar to being the largest tornado. I shouldn't say North America, the largest tornado in the world. Um, Because we, we don't get larger tornadoes than than that size, 4.2 kilometers wide. And so it all happened so fast. And there was a time where even a couple of our colleagues weren't coming up on the radio and we didn't know if they were okay. And that was really scary. Another friend of mine got hit by a transport truck that got clipped by the edge of the tornado and, and, uh, the truck, the transport truck rolled right over next to his car. And I mean, it's just terrifying. The, the weather channel, the U S version of what we are, they flipped their car because the, the, um, the, tornado caught their car um it was a very scary chase day that will you know always be always be remembered as Jacqueline mentioned earlier storm chasing has long had a bit of a macho image and been a bit of a boys club but that is gradually changing I asked her about mentors and role models that had helped her in her career and how she thought the field was moving forward in terms of encouraging women and girls to consider storm chasing as a career yeah, I would say, um, you know, probably one of my my biggest mentors turns out to be now my best friend. Um, her name is Dana Vatisse. I met her, um, I guess, seven years ago when I started at the Weather Network. And the first year I went there, I was able to go storm chasing with Mark Robinson, who's now my chase partner. And she was out there. I really hit it off with Dana. And I remember just thinking, like, this is so cool. Like, here we are two women, you know, keeping up with the boys, no problem. Like, you know, we were heavy forecasting and we could, you know, we could hang with the guys, you know what I mean? There was no difference. And, and there never has been, our group of guys have never treated us any, nor should they, but any lesser, like, you know, it's just, they just, we are all equals out there. And I think that's so awesome and so empowering because it is a very male dominated industry. Uh, in terms of storm chasing, not so much media, but in storm chasing, it, it's mostly guys. But it's changing, and um, she definitely has been a mentor because she's a very strong woman. She's a very strong meteorologist and forecaster, and she's also just super fun and has become now my best friend. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really look up to her, and I, I, I just think that you know, I I talk to schools, I go to classrooms sometimes and talk about storm chasing. And I hope that it does inspire, inspire young women to give this a go. You know, um, it's, it's great. It's great to feel brave as a woman. It's great to feel powerful as a woman. And yeah, we need more of that. So I, I hope to inspire more, more people, more young people. 
And if people want to follow you, find out more, where can they find you both online and in real life? Sure. Um, okay. Well, um, online, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter and my Twitter account is J W H I T T A L and then capital T W N, which stands for the weather network. Um, you can go there. You can also find the show that I host. Um, I, I don't know if it's in the UK uh, or not, but if you live in the States and you're listening to this or you live in Canada, we're on Amazon prime. Uh, and you can see storm hunters there. You can also go to the weathernetwork.com and we are there. Um, you know, our show is there and I'm there every day doing, um, forecasts for our digital platforms. That's really my normal job. I do forecasting daily for Canada and the U S, um, on our website and on our app. That's so cool. And I always just um, throw the floor open at the end of every chat I have, Jacqueline, just to say, is there anything else that you want to say, like, you know, from our chat or just in general about your career and and women's careers? You have the floor. I have the floor. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, what everything that we do as women is unique and special. And, you know, mine might be chasing tornadoes, but, you know, I think it's important to just remember as women that there is no limit. And for a long time, certainly where I live, you know, in North America, women, women didn't have that sense of equality and didn't have that belief in their self, in, in themselves that they could do just as well as a man. And I think that we have to remember that, um, we are capable and capable of much grander things than we probably even imagine. So that's, that's what I want to say. And I think this podcast is, is a great platform to, to basically speak that. So thank you for having me. Really, it should be me thanking Jacqueline for her time and for chatting to me for the podcast today. So thanks, Jacqueline. If you enjoyed her story, then please do share this episode however you like with others that you think may enjoy it too. That's it for today. But as ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, then do drop me a line because I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast site as it helps others to find us. But more importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next week. <laughs>